Well, good morning, good day, good evening. It is Wednesday. It is May 10th, 2022. And uh, as I sit with you in my little uh, secret abandoned building over here to record this, there's a whole bunny thing going on outside and it's in alignment with what I wanted to talk about today. It's going to be food, it's going to be health, it's going to be healing, and the intersection of those three because it's really a different kind of conversation. But before we launch into that version, I just wanted to describe to you what I just saw. Now, those of you who remember my uh, cow farm days, and I don't think I ever really did justice to the video about the number of cottontail rabbits that were everywhere, because apparently I didn't understand what a shockingly high number of rabbits now that I have uh, been in a lot of different places and people will say things like, oh, we have lots of rabbits. And I'm like, I've seen three in three months. So uh, I did not understand, you know, waking up, going out the door and seeing 50, literally 50 rabbits within, you know, one quick glance and them all interacting with each other and moving around and hopping and feeding and chasing each other. I didn't realize that was so rare. And, you know, one of the questions people asked asked me was why you don't eat the rabbits. And uh, in that particular location at the base of those mountains, there was bubonic plague, there was hantavirus, there was the name of the rabbit disease that I can't remember what it is, but there was a lot of diseases and the rabbits carried them. And there's some prevailing wisdom that everybody contradicts each other with. You can eat them in winter after the first snow. Uh, you can only eat them in the months without an R in the uh, title, which is like June and July and August, which sort of flies in the contradiction face of everything. And so, and everybody swore, you know, their information was right. And I just didn't feel like getting bit by a flea that carried some disgusting disease. And so I just never ate them. But I always looked at them and I thought about it. And this morning as I was walking over here, there was a new rabbit. Apparently there's a lady that lives next door that has domestic rabbits because there's a black rabbit. You saw it in the video uh, several back that was just sort of sitting there and went under the trailer and it escaped a long time ago. It's a domestic rabbit, but it lives just here under, actually it lives under the trailer of the building I'm sitting in. Uh, but this morning there was this huge, fat, beautiful, slow rabbit. <laughs> and it must be another one that escaped from her house because while it wouldn't let me pick it up, it let me get precariously close to it. Uh, and it's probably not used to being outside and it's going to be somebody's dinner here very shortly if it does not find its way back into the house over next door which is actually a significant distance away although I've seen the black rabbit go back and forth it strays quite far from its little safety zone which is under this trailer but you know it's sort of a perfect example of uh, how I wanted to talk about food today because you know, a rabbit is basically a prey animal. It's not a predator. It just eats grass. It's uh, the difference between a wild animal and a, a wild rabbit and a domesticated rabbit. Uh, most often is its response to threat. Uh, you know, a domesticated rabbit doesn't really understand it's under threat. Uh, there's some instinct that's left in it because it just, you know, ran away from me. But 
Even the rabbits over at the cow farm let me get precariously close to them too because they were used to me and I had not posed a threat. And so, you know, to me that's an example of an animal that is only ever a prey, but it has some tiny residual instinct of what predators are inside of it. And as humans, we've pretty much lost all of that. And I only talk about that in relationship to food because that was my thought. That is going to be somebody's dinner because it does not know how to get out of the way. Even though it's finding a way to feed itself outside, it will never be as fat and happy as it was inside. (laughs) And that was sort of the discussion I was having this morning because, you know, I've made a couple... uh, comments and audio with you guys about predator relationship and I'm not a farmer and you know hunter-gatherer versus farmer mentality and you know one of the striking differences between that fat and very sluggish rabbit is it's really fat. Uh, Wild rabbits aren't fat because their eating is much more uh, inconsistent and yet nature always provides until it doesn't and To me, this is the difference between health and healing, our relationship with food. And we are in a place where we have had such amazing abundance of food, of access to food, of of regular ability to eat, uh, and all these weird, bizarre relationships with food that have nothing to do with food. And one of the reasons I talked about health versus healing is exactly this. You know, we think of food as something that can give us health. And some people are so committed to that. And they are so, what's the word I want? Rigorous, uh, disciplined. Uh, militant about their eating. Uh, It goes into their beliefs about what we should eat. It's as bad as religion these days. Uh, But none of that type of eating really has anything to do with the human as animal in relationship to food on the planet. Uh, And I had run a little experiment these last couple days and I had had one of my uh, bad migraines and I Uh, Well, I get really nauseous, and so I can't eat a lot of times when that happens. And uh, I had uh, a breakfast, and I only had that one meal, but it was a high-protein, high-fat, low-carbohydrate meal, but it was big. Uh, And I was able to go the whole day, you know, being nauseous, not eating again. Well, I thought, well, let me just try it again. And so I did... The second day I had the exact, I did everything exactly the same because the headache was gone. So I wanted to see, you know, how much of the meal, uh, uh, how much of the food cured my uh, hunger versus the nausea suppressing the hunger. And I didn't have the nausea and I actually, you know, made it the whole day. I only ate the one meal. I didn't have hunger, but I had a lot of desire Uh, as the afternoon came around to want to eat things and part of that is my brain fuel needing to be kicked in because of all the thinking I do I finally figured out by the afternoon it's not my body that's craving food that's my brain Uh, but so the next day yesterday I decided well let's just do a completely different kind of meal and see what happens and Uh, You know, I made the same thing for me and the dog. I had some uh, beef stew that I had got in a can that was 
kind of gross, but I wanted to see how it would hold in case of emergency in the future, right? So I had rice and I had beef stew. I gave him some eggs to, you know, beef up his protein, pun intended. And it wasn't even two hours before I was in total craving mode. And I wasn't physically hungry, but I was physically uncomfortable. And I intellectually know all this stuff. Uh, I haven't really been able to do much about it because I haven't been able to have as much protein here as I actually require because I haven't had a freezer so I can eat well for a couple days and then I just struggle, you know, through the rest of the month uh, until I can get back to the store and I have a couple days, you know, or a week worth of decent food. But because I have access to a freezer here, I was able to buy on this last shopping trip enough meat to last me for a while. And what I wanted to say is if we take away this idea of of food as just health, uh, as an obsession with our health, uh, and we look to the past, and we look to nature, and we look to what indigenous people ate, it's more of a healing relationship. And remember I talked about the difference between health was like the practical aspect of it. And healing is more that emotional stepping back and kind of relaxing into a softening. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's one of those things that I would like to see come in relationship to our food and not such a militancy about what we believe nutrition is, but also not using food as something it was never meant to be, which is a source of distraction, a source of attention, a source of pleasure, a source of addiction, a source of stimulation, all the things that we use food to be something that it's not. And that's sort of, you know, what I've learned from nature is they just eat when they can, they eat what's around them, and they don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, One of the most interesting books that I have not been able to read, I've just heard the highlights from, is how ancient cultures responded to this before there was uh, agriculture. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned was that when we started agriculture, uh, we got sedentary. And when we got sedentary, we weren't moving with the seasons to get the food that was available to us. We were bringing the food to us. And... Uh, what it's uh, Sally Fallon she wrote the book uh, Nourishing Traditions which is one of my favorites someday we're going to do a favorite books segment uh, because it talks about how ancient people prepared all the food well in this book she went back and looked at how ancient cultures and what their relationship was with food and she said one of the things that people settlers in America did not understand about Native Americans is that the magic of abundance of food that they found, not the Jamestown people, but you know, as they moved into the, to the different areas of the Americas, wasn't a natural accident, but was because the Native Americans created a system of working with nature to produce food. And we're seeing a little bit about that happening in what they call food forests and permaculture, Uh, but especially the food forest, it's an integrative relationship with how uh, all the different aspects of nature can come together and create more food. And that's what the natives were doing. They were creating on their mobile wandering path by seasons, a food corridor. 
and it looked natural because they worked with the landscape, I guess, or the architecture, right? They worked with the systems of nature that were in place versus agriculture that conquers the system and creates a way to grow food. Uh, and, you know, I'm one of the reasons I'm talking about this is I'm just having this ongoing thrashing around with all my little plants dying and all this resistance I have and I keep thinking what's going to happen when there's no food and I haven't planted and I'm planting and it's still dying and you know I'm having a lot of stress around this and part of that experiment was you know how did I do which was harder to be hungry or you know and have nothing to eat or to have a lot of carbohydrates to eat and be craving and wanting to eat which was easier to manage they're both uncomfortable but which one was easier to manage and the one that's easier to manage was actually hunger body hunger versus the brain hunger of craving uh, more food even though my tummy wasn't hungry and you know we're all different some people do really well on different kinds of diets I think a lot of that has to do with our our origins where did our people come from and my people you know were Uh, meat and potato people my people were hunting people before they were farming people even though I know I have uh, farmers in my uh, ancestry but but my people you know my bloodline is a meat bloodline it's uh, I opened a English uh, cookbook one time and it talked about how much uh, the British people ate meat and how many different kinds of meat they would eat at breakfast. And I'm laughing because if I could only eat one meal, it would be breakfast. I mean, it was describing me to a T. Uh, and, you know, 30% of my ancestry is in Britain. Uh, you know, I think I told you the other 25% is Danish. And then I'm watching the show about how the Danish and the British Uh, before it was England, before it was Britain, you know, we're so intermingled. And I'm thinking that's 75% of my ancestry is, you know, in these people. Uh, And so it's been fascinating to watch this. But, But we have, you know, we all have different needs in terms of the macro ratios. Uh, But one of the things I found most uh, fascinating is when you survey the world, the world averages throughout time about 14% protein which sort of goes against all the uh, paleo eat only meat carnivore people it's really the fat carbohydrate ratio that is most in flux and what I find uh, I have to have some protein or I spent 15 years being a vegetarian and I was just insane that whole time so I know I have to have you know a pretty good chunk of protein but but it's the fat to carbohydrate ratio I think that really comes into flux with how we feel and it is uh, one of those things fat is very difficult to scavenge off the land without animals and uh, right now we're being pushed into a world that says that we're going to eat bugs and we're going to have calories rationed uh, that we need to be farmers and uh, they're killing all the livestock and so you know, I'm having, you know, the same as you, I'm having all these conversations in my head and I thought I need to just step back because it's stressing me out because I can't fix, I can't control and I can't solve this problem. Uh, And so I'm looking at these rabbits, they don't have big, long, old conversations. Uh, They just eat when there's food on the ground and you get fat when there's a lot of food, like the big fat rabbit. And then when there's not a lot of food, your body burns that fat until you can eat again. 
And humans are built for feast or famine. We're not built for constant grazing, uh, but we've become, many of us, constant grazers. And there's more of a psychology to that, even though there is a response physiologically, the psychology to craving, I think, has much more to do with uh, conditioning than it does do with any kind of nutrition or uh, real thing in our body. And we're not used to being hungry. We're not used to being uncomfortable. Uh, we're not used to not having access to food. And so part of this healing idea I thought I wanted to talk about as I've been, you know, doing super depressing, hungry things is uh, I think a lot of the fear, you know, a lot of the prepping is, you know, I'm going to be hungry. And 99% of the survival food that's out there is carbohydrates, which for most people, you know, it, it lasts for a few hours, but you burn through that really, really quickly. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned that was so interesting with the fasting uh, when I was studying that and autophagy and things like that is that, you know, I've shared before is that when you eat fewer calories over the day, your metabolism drops, which is what makes you feel sluggish and tired and slow and weak versus a feast or famine, having a lot to eat and then having nothing to eat. And if you look at predator and prey, most prey animal grazes. They do grass, they do, uh, they forage, they're on the ground. Most predator animal eats in a hit or miss way. I know I read that wolves can take in more than half their body weight in one feeding and they can go six weeks without eating and and they have to have energy because they still have to hunt and so there's all these things that we do not understand about our relationship with food and our bodies and that really is under the practical and the health category but as we move into a time where we may not be able to get what we want when we want in the amount we want whenever we want I think you know, the other conversation that we can start having with ourselves while it is a softer conversation because we have choices still is what would it mean to heal our relationship with food? And, you know, for me, that has been, as I've watched all these uh, people farm and ranch and nature and wildlife uh, from my grocery store suburbia upbringing is there's a a big part of how we treat the animals. Uh, You know, I think people have uh, an idea that there's tremendous cruelty going on with any kind of livestock. And, you know, with exceptions, you see me document the people that don't take care of their animals. Most people take care of their animals because that's their livelihood. Uh, You know, they try and take care of the soil, most people, not everybody, because that's their livelihood. And so this assumption that any kind of domesticated animal is being abused is really incorrect. The uh, most, you know, indigenous cultures have tremendous respect and attention to their animals. I remember watching something about the nomads in Mongolia, and they won't even eat a goat or a lamb in the first year if it dies out of respect. They won't even uh, consume that uh, that 
goat or sheep when it's a baby and you know they bring them into their home at night and they sleep with them and they know all their names I watched one I think it was Romania it was like they had 300 sheep and this guy knew every single sheep's personality and characteristics and you know we look and they all look the same to us and so we have you know a lot of assumptions that really aren't correct and that was probably one of the things I learned the most was that for the most part the animals open grazing animals have it really good it's the factory farm animals that don't but you know anything that's on a small farm or small ranch uh, it has a pretty good life it's living pretty much as closely to the way nature intended it as possible you know there's there's days where they're bad but it's they're pretty few and far between and so uh, you know that was very healing to my relationship because I can't be vegetarian and I took away a lot of my guilt around eating meat was when I saw how the meat I was eating was raised because I was eating the cows that I was taking care of so I knew that those cows you know for the most part were doing okay a few of them you know had some bad experiences but that's the same for everything and all of us and everywhere and so I wanted to bro- broach this subject at looking not just at food as something to be afraid of that's going away or food as health that's something that we believe if we don't get you know I love these people well I have to have this certain grain from this remote country on the top of a hill and if I can't get that you know I can't be healthy and and you know nothing could be further from the truth because uh, one of the things that was so helpful for me was reading about indigenous cultures and how they ate was how differently they all ate and yet they were wildly healthy until Western food processes were brought into the picture. And and I've mentioned it before. It's the most excruciating book ever. It's by Weston Price. It's uh, Physical and Mental Degeneration. Uh, and it documents. He went to, I think, 14 or 15 different uh, cultures that had not been exposed to Western foods, meaning processed flour, processed sugar, things like that. And they were all incredibly healthy regardless of the ratios uh, that they were eating until western types of foods were brought into their diet and uh, you know and we're just not at a time where most of us can just default back into living off the land Uh, there's a really interesting movement within Native American cultures Uh, I'm hoping that there's somebody here I haven't found anybody yet called food sovereignty that is discussing this exact topic how do we return back to the ways uh, of our ancestors how did they eat and for Native Americans who have an incredibly high diabetes uh, the Pima Indian in you know the Tucson area, Tucson Arizona area, have the highest, or at least they used to have the highest diabetes rates in the world. Well, their indigenous food isn't a high protein, high fat diet. It's actually a high carbohydrate diet, but it's very complex. It's basically roots. It's yucca, and uh, I forget what the other one is that they eat. But it's such a complex carbohydrate that it slows dramatically, you know, their blood sugar and their insulin levels, and so. It isn't about exactly what we eat. It has so much more to do with the macro ratios of carbohydrate, fat, protein, and also, you know, getting those micronutrients, vitamin C, things like that. Every culture has a different way to do that in their location. But it's also, you know, our ancestry. What was it? What do our bodies naturally respond to? And it's pretty loose. And if we can step back 
and have the conversation not about food and health or food and famine as we panic, you know, for the everything flashing before our eyes here. And remember that people survived all over the world before agricultural uh, practices were put into place. And they didn't die from chronic diseases. They died from childbirth, they died from accidents, and they died from violence. They did not die from heart disease or cancer or things like that. And uh, I know there's an Amazon tribe that the last one I was reading about where they did, uh, you know, blood tests. And, you know, the hearts were like, you know, the 80-year-old men had the hearts of 40-year-olds, but when they looked in their body, they were filled with uh, parasites, and they're like, how can this be? How can your body be filled with parasites and not have it be wildly inflamed? So there's just so many things that we still don't understand about uh, our environment, our food, our body, and our health, but I do believe that that what needs to come first, and this is not today, this is a long-term proposition, this is how we want to imagine a future that we want to build, is how do we heal our relationship with food in the first place, instead of using it as something to focus on, as using it as a crutch. Uh, It's a fear, right? If I don't get my three meals, I'm going to die of starvation. If I don't have something to snack on, I'm going to go crazy, right? It's a, we use it for so many things and a weapon, you know, with sanctions and things like that. So we use it with, for so many things other than what it's meant to be. Uh, And I think that's a healing relationship. Uh, You know, one of the things I uh, learned a long time ago, I don't know if it's true or not, but it makes sense is that Uh, you know, corn in the way that we eat it, not the GMO corn as we've genetically modified it, but corn from its natural state and to the state that we look at it now with a big ear, you know, full of kernels, is a genetically modified food. Uh, And that happened a long time ago. Corn in the wild is a little three or four inch, tiny little cob that's inedible. And somebody modified it so that the people had food. Uh, And the story that that's attached to is the aliens or the gods, uh, whoever you want to think about in the past, they created grains as a way to feed the people because we were being domesticated. And I always find that really, really interesting because in my own study, before I knew anything about any of this other stuff, was that uh, people did not get domesticated until they uh, became agricultural. And then after they became agricultural is when they actually got more violent. Before agriculture, they weren't as violent. Now, that's not true, you know, when you look at the history of the Native Americans. So this is actually historical more than uh, 10, 20,000 years ago. This is the really, really old stuff. But at some point in our ancient, ancient history, grains were introduced as a way to feed a lot of people in a small space. You know, one of the biggest things I learned by living with livestock is how much humans have become livestock, how we basically live in contained environments where we depend on food being brought to us. And when it's not there, we kind of stand around in a state of confusion and we don't know what to do. And we're, they're fenced in, so they can't go look for it. They can't get away from 
the lack or the starvation or the no water or the weather because they're trapped in the barbed wire. Uh, where the wild animals, they just bust the gates, they go over, they go under, they don't let anything stop them. So, and they do quite well, you know, when everything else changes. Although interestingly, antelope, uh, deer, those kinds of things, if it's a drought, they will actually abandon their babies. They'll have their baby in the field and then they just leave because they don't have a way to feed that baby. So it's not all, you know, milk and honey in the wild. But I always think that's really interesting is the invention of agricultural in mass with grains came about when theoretically we were domesticated as human to be kind of worker slaves. So uh, you know, we know we saw that in Egypt. They fed them bread and yeast as part of their beer that was their liquid. There was a, I forget what it was called, it was some kind of yeasty milk liquid that was their primary food source. So there's so much history that we don't understand. But I think we're in this critical moment where uh, food is becoming a bit of a panic button. Uh, and I think the answer isn't to focus on how do I get more. Uh, but really to maybe take a step back and ask what kind of relationship do you want with food? What does your ancestral blood cry out for? Uh, what makes you happy? You know, what what discomfort are you willing to endure, right? You know, you look at the Dust Bowl and all the farmers who went years and years with no food. Uh, you know, actually the rabbits proliferated and they ate all the wild grasses too and that's what created a lot of the dust. There was a horrible video, this is so off topic, but it's flashing in my mind is, there was a moment where the rabbits were so, they were like ants and all the farmers were out there just killing the rabbits, beating them over the head uh, to get rid of them because they'd eaten every little tiny green stalk and they were so out of control. So. Nature isn't perfect. I don't want to give you any kind of uh, fancy, fantasy illusions about uh, creating some kind of idyllic utopia. I think that's how we get communism. But what I do want to say is that we can think about creating a more uh, healing, healed uh, relationship with food I, don't, I think that would be a really good thing. I, I think that, you know, we don't value the life of the animals the way people have in the past. We don't value the hard work it takes to raise our food. Uh, I remember listening to, I don't even know what, it, what the context was, but it was some young guy and his friends were on a cruise for the first time and they ordered, you know, five hamburgers and five pizzas each and didn't eat them just because they could. And I'm like, but those were animals that you just threw away because you put no value in their life to feed you and nourish you. You just dismissed it as an entitlement. Uh, you know, and, and every decision has a consequence. And I think one of the consequences of our not paying attention to where our food comes from has resulted in it being poisoned, you know, in our land being poisoned and all the nutrition is drained from it. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, as of 1950, the soil and the food's nutritional value from its natural state was at 50%. I can only imagine uh, what it is now. Uh, most people fertilize with just three minerals when there's actually 90, you know, that our bodies need. So we are so depleted nutritionally. We don't even understand how food has been weaponized 
in many, many ways, but because we just focus on whether we feel full and satisfied and pleasured and it tastes good. Uh, you know, I can hardly watch these cooking shows because they're just gotten to the point where they're obscene. Uh, you know, I saw somewhere on that the, with the keto thing, which I'm not, you know, I don't, I believe that we should be both fat and, uh, and uh, glucose. We should have both fuel sources. We should be able to be hungry. We should be able to eat a lot. I, I believe in the feast famine. How did we, how was human wired to eat? You know, after 40 years of studying nutrition, I believe that uh, we have a pretty flexible design, but it's how we, uh, our relationship with food that's actually more important than what we're putting in our mouths. But, but anyways, it was a keto thing and it was some kind of super decadent chocolate recipe. And I'm like, you know, our ancestors weren't obsessing about how to make the most sweetest, disgusting treat and still pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, I'm still eating well. Uh, you know, they were grateful. They feasted, they celebrated when there was abundance, uh, they fasted and they did without when there was scarcity, uh, and they valued food. I think for those of you who picked up that book that I love so much, you know, two old women, how they took themselves, you know, on almost no food, right? Where they got left behind because there was no food and their tribe couldn't feed them. So they were said, you're old, you don't count anymore. So we're going to leave you alone. And and they caught one rabbit, you know, and they made that rabbit stretch and stretch and stretch till they finally got themselves to a place. They made the winner. And then when the salmon came in, that's just all they did was they collected salmon in preparation for the next year because that's what that particular location offered. Uh, but they, they valued the food. They treasured it. They saw it as sacred. And I think that part of what's you know, hopefully going to happen in our future is healing our relationship with food and valuing the life that it gives us. Whether, you know, a, uh, I don't think most people know this, but for every acre of farmland that's planted, 300 animals die. You know, they're little rabbits and mice and rats and things like that. Uh, so, you know, people who are obsessed with vegetarianism as a way to not kill anything, it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, so it doesn't matter what you do. You know, nature pays the price for our needing to eat, but that's the way nature is. Everything eats everything. There's nothing in nature that doesn't consume something else. And so that's, we're part of that cycle. And part of healing our relationship is really understanding that we are part of the cycle versus you know what we've done in the past which is conquer control and dominate and a lot of people believe you know I know it's a strong religious tradition that human was put on the earth to conquer and control and dominate the rest of the world I do not personally subscribe to that because it hasn't done anything for us you know, it's just created a different set of problems. It hasn't solved all of our problems. It's just created a different set of problems. Uh, and it's the, and the most important one being is it's totally removed us away from nature, which is how our entire biology is designed to be part of nature. Uh, and for those of you who have had the, uh, you know, extreme uh, not pleasure I want, but benefit or grace or, you know, like me that have been able to re-emerge and to a life that is filled more with nature. And you know how incredible it is to be able to access 
uh, you know, nature on a daily basis. Like I could never go back. You don't know what you're missing until you, you know, experience it. So if you've never had the experience of sleeping on the ground and, you know, rising by sunlight and having it be perfectly still and quiet and drinking water, you know, that's pure from the ground, you don't know what you're missing if you've never had the experience of it. But it's so much better in terms of healing. Uh, and I also think it's better for us in terms of health. Our bodies are wildly uh, resilient. I mean, it's just incredible what people can endure and survive and get through. Uh, and so I think all of our fears around hunger are valid and scary. But that was the conversation I was having this morning is, uh, you know, I want to I mean, I've been doing this, but to really, uh, you know, bring this to your apparent, to your awareness is also focusing on how we heal our relationship with food and what does that look like to you? Because my vision will not be your vision. And that's sort of the beauty of imagination. It's the beauty of ideas. It's the beauty of the collective is when we work cooperatively, it's just so much better than one person stomping around saying, I'm right about everything. Uh, we are incredibly amazing uh, as humans and we have so much good we can do in the world and and one of the most important things we could do is to remember that health is a product of our food but it doesn't come from controlling it more it comes from I believe healing our relationship to it by remembering that it is a sacred part of the whole system. It's not something that we dominate and control and demand uh, it perform. You know, and I say that because I'm visualizing, uh, I've been sprouting seeds and I'm trying to grow cabbage because as you know, I like the lacto cabbage as a way to have vitamin C, right? And so I'm like, if I can just get two big cabbages, one green and one purple to grow, you know, that will get me through most of winter with vitamin C. And I think I've so far I'm down to like six different seedlings have died. I only have one green cabbage that's not croaking. And so I was looking when I was watering this morning, I have, you know, five cans that are all my seedlings have all died except for one and it's growing up and out. It's sprouted, sprouted its, you know, second set of leaves. So we're up to four leaves, you know, and how it's the only one that has come forth. And, uh, you know, all I want to do is quit and walk away but you know there's that one little tiny plant that's trying to grow Uh, you know all my control all my uh, trying to force it all my demand that they all grow in these pots on my time schedule is not working except for this one little plant and so uh, it's a it's a really interesting period of time I think we're going to get to learn so much about ourselves uh, not just health but also in healing and I think as much as I don't like it I don't like to think about it. I don't like to talk about it. It is one of the more important things to accomplish as human is the healing of our heart, our soul, our spirit. And when we do that, our body uh, naturally reflects a higher degree of health. Unfortunately, controlling everything we eat, uh, it doesn't always make us healthy. It It can create the illusion of health. But I think a militant belief system about anything never really works out at the end of the day. You can have a healthy body and like every relationship is destroyed. We all have issues that we need to work on. But for today, this month, we're talking about health and healing in the body, the mind, the heart, and the spirit. And 
Uh, and one of the most important things that we're all looking at with fear and trepidation, but also maybe we can add some grace and respect, is our relationship with food and our health versus how can we heal that relationship in the way that makes sense to us. And I'm having a lot of fun thinking about my ancestors and remembering uh, what that would feel like within my DNA, within my memories, uh, you know, as I watch uh, these actors recreate the scenes that would have been something that would have been in my past, although they film it with a really gray filter, so I would like to think, even though it is England, that there would be a little more sunlight, not gray, every single day. So with that, I'm going to say I'm so glad you were here. We're going to take a deep breath. Uh, before I forget, I'm going to start adding a thread on Thursday for those of you who are paid members. Uh, I want to slowly move us towards what I like to call this book of wisdom. And one of the things I thought would be really interesting for us to do, uh, I got an email this morning, uh, somebody sharing a movie that he really liked, and I've been thinking about this a while, uh, is that we'll have a thread once a week where you can tell everybody what your uh, favorites are, whether it's, uh, you know, like for me, my lacto cabbage is my favorite go-to emergency food for health, uh, whether it's movies, whether it's podcasts, whether it's books. Uh, but we can slowly start building our own libraries for those of us who've just been talking about it and haven't done it like me. Uh, I have it scattered. I don't have it collected. So I'm hoping to start moving forward on collecting it uh, as I am thinking more about journaling and writing and things like that. So uh, I'm not going to email the Thursdays out to you. I'm only going to email you on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday because it's already feeling overwhelming to me. Uh, you can always unsubscribe. The Monday, Wednesday emails are on one list. The Friday is a separate list. So uh, I'm going to try to do a summary on Friday for you. So if you only want to get one email a week, uh, you can unsubscribe from the Monday, Wednesday, uh, or you can, uh, you know, the, the Friday email is for paid people. So uh, it is, uh, I'm trying to streamline it because like you, I hate getting a bunch of stuff. I've been signing up for other newsletters to explore what other people are doing and I'm just getting inundated with emails and I don't really like that. So uh, I am going to try and uh, keep it as simple for you as possible so that you can see what's out there but not overwhelm you with things coming to your inbox. So any other suggestions are always appreciated and how I can make this a better and more effective experience for you. And I think that will do it. It's kind of a long one this morning. So deep breath, my friends, and I will see you next time.